Please open your Bibles to Exodus 3. Are we using the ESV or the NKJV? Okay. I guess I'll use this Bible then. Exodus 3, starting at verse 16. Now, before we get to our section, verse 16 to 22, it's important to know kind of where, where we've come, because I am preaching a sermon which is in the middle of a, of a series, uh, so it's good to get at least some background before we di- dive into it. Um, so even just in chapter 3, um, we read about Moses and the burning bush. We, we learn about how God came down in fire, in a bush, and then revealed himself to Moses in this way. And he is calling Moses to a very specific task to bring a message of rescue, a message of rescue out of the bondage of Egypt, out of a bondage of slavery. And Moses, finally being at least a little bit honest with himself, says, who am I? How can I be adequate for this task? And he's not. But the Lord says, I will be with you. You are inadequate, and there are dangers, but I will be with you. So it will work. And then God speaks more about why it is that he can have confidence if he is with him. Because he is the I am who I am. He is the unchanging, holy, far above God. He's the almighty God, but he's not only the far above almighty God, but he's also the God of their fathers. Meaning that he has chosen, based on his own promise, to be the God of his people. That God is still far above us, but yet he has chosen to be our people. So he's encouraging Moses, he's encouraging us, as he sets Moses off on his task to bring this message of rescue, and as we are also encouraged to bring our messages of rescue to the world, as we hear this message of rescue each and every Sunday, that God is our God, that he remains our God. And now in our section, we get to more of the nuts and bolts of of the task at hand, you could say. And so verse 16, we'll be beginning. Chapter 3, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please... Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch my hand out, stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give you this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. 
so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. So before I went to seminary and before I had the opportunity to do this work this summer, being an intern at uh, River of Life, uh, I was a landscaper. And I had the opportunity to, one, be a laborer, just a laborman, but also the chance to be a foreman. And they're very different. It's a lot different being somebody who gets told what to do and to be the one telling people what to do. It's much more of a daunting task to be the one who comes up with the plan and make sure that your workers do the plan. In many ways, it's a much simpler task to just be told what to do. To be said, okay, do this, and this will happen. Do this, and then this will happen. And then do this, and this will happen. And that's kind of what we're seeing in our passage this morning. God being, you could say, the great foreman, the great boss who is laying out the plan for Moses. Saying, go do this, this will happen. Go do this, this will happen. All you need to do, Moses, is follow the instructions. You don't need to come up with a plan yourself. I did it. Just listen. Listen and do what I tell you to do. But as we will see, and as we might even be assuming right now, is that life is a little bit more complicated than that. Even when we have a great God who tells us part of his plan, he doesn't tell us everything. And so in our passage, Moses, and in turn Israel, and in turn we, are called to not only obey the instructions of our God, but also to trust and have faith that when those moments come where there's unexpected twists and turns, when there's more pain than we expected, more suffering, more ebbs and flows than we expected, to still have faith and trust that our God remains in control. That he has given us the main points, and even in those little details that he hasn't given to us, that he still got it. He still knows what he's doing. And that will be the theme of our message this, this, this afternoon, that our God remains in control. Now, before we get to the three points that you have in your bulletin, we want to look at the first couple of verses first. God here is saying to Moses, I am the Lord God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I have seen the affliction that you have suffered in Egypt, and I will bring you up. Now, in Hebrew, when they want to make an emphatic point, they repeat things. But you only need to repeat something twice in, only in order to make it emphatic. But here we see, if, if, if you know the last three chapters, when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is the fourth time that he says this. And when he says, I have seen your affliction and I will bring you up, this is the third time that he says this. Not just the second time, but God is saying these same things over and over and over again. Now, there must be a reason. It wouldn't be in the Bible if there wasn't a point to it. And the point is found also in remembering where Israel is right now, when this is written. Moses is writing this while Israel is in the wilderness, wandering about, waiting for that promised land, but not yet at that promised land. And so they need to be reminded, because they are not a stunning example of faith and trust, they need to be reminded about who God is, I am, the, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have chosen you to be my people based on the promise that I made, not based on you, but because of the promise that I made 
They need to be reminded about who God is and his care for them and what he has already done for them. I have heard your cry and I have seen your affliction. And only when we're reminded of who God is and what he has done for us are we then ready to believe and fully trust in the promise that he gives us. To Israel, the promise specifically in verse 16, 17, I promise to bring you up out of the land of Egypt and bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. When Israel remembers who God is, then they can hear the promise and hopefully trust the promise. And for us, even today, when we are reminded about who God is, God is good. God is the almighty creator God who has chosen us to be his people for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. He makes a promise to us that I will bring you up out of the bondage of your sin and bring you to a promised land, to a new land. You can even hear that in the words of Jesus where he says that my fa- I go to prepare a place for you and in that place there are many mansions. God, Jesus, while he was even here on the earth, gives us this promise. I promise to bring you up out of your slavery and bring you to a land where there are many mansions. A land, you could say, flowing with, with milk and with honey. And so now we get to the plan at hand. So we're, what we're going to do here is that we're going to go through the plan, the rest of the passage. We're going to see what the plan is. And then the second point, it says what the plan doesn't say. So we're going to start over and go through it again. And then we're going to look at the result of the plan. So first, what the plan actually says. Step one, Moses, go and tell the elders who I am and what I have done and what I will do. I am God. I have heard you. I will bring you up. Go tell them and they will listen. Step two. Actually, before we go to step two, one thing to note. (laughs) What's important here, we can't miss it, is that God specifically says over and over again that the land is prosperous. That's what a land flowing with milk and honey means, that it has prosperity. Now, that's important because the very reason why Israel came to Egypt in the first place was because Canaan had a famine. And so they wouldn't even want to go back to Canaan if they weren't assured that that famine hadn't ended. And that famine actually turned into milk and honey, prosperity. And so even in this message, God is assuring his people, the famine's over. I am bringing you in my grace and in my mercy to a land of prosperity. Well, you will be prosperous. Step two, with the elders, go and tell Pharaoh, Tell him to let us go for three days so we can go in the wilderness and worship God. Now, those of us who who know the story of the Exodus know that they didn't just leave for three days, right? They left permanently. So the question is, is God tricking Pharaoh here? Is he saying, "Hmm, let us go for three days and we'll just get out forever? No, that's not what's going on. What's going on is that God is showing Moses, and particularly he's showing us today, the cruelty of, of Pharaoh. That even this small request, Pharaoh, just let us go for a few days. I know work will be slow, but just a couple days, let us worship our God, and we'll be right back. And even that, Pharaoh says, no. Not even a little bit. You are staying, you are working. And so it displays the cruelty of Pharaoh, but it also displays the glorious purpose of God. That in the end, as we may well know, 
that they don't just leave for three days, but they leave permanently. Permanent rest, permanent in this new promised land. Step three, because Pharaoh won't listen, God has to do something. God has to compel Moses by many wonders. And after these wonders come, again, we may know them as the ten plagues. After these wonders come, then Pharaoh will listen and will let you go. And then step four, have the women ask their neighbors, particularly the ones that are near to them, for articles of silver, gold, and clothing, and they will listen. You will leave not empty-handed, but you will plunder the Egyptians. So this is the plan, step by step by step. And in a sense, this is a very simple plan for Moses. Just do it. Everything will work out fine. But again, as we've said, life is more complicated than that. And in the, in the Israelites in the wilderness, looking back on this event, would know too that it didn't happen that smoothly. That there were ebbs and flows, that there were ups and downs, that there were more suffering than they anticipated. God laid out a plan simply, but he didn't give every single detail. Let's go through it again. So step one, we said that go and tell the elders, and they will listen. And they do listen. To be fair, the first time they do listen, but immediately when Pharaoh rejects them for the first time, they all of a sudden don't listen anymore. They don't listen. They reject God. They reject Moses as their deliverer. And even after that, they will even complain and say, God, why are you bringing so many plagues upon this, upon us? We are suffering just as the Egyptians are suffering. So they not only renege on their listening, but they even go worse and start grumbling and complaining about the plan. And then eventually, after all these wonders are done, then they start listening again. And then if you know the story of Israel more, then they don't listen again. And then they listen again. And then they don't listen again. And so it isn't just as simple as you will tell them and that they will always listen. There's disappointment going to happen, that they won't always listen. They will disappoint you, Moses. But in the end, when it counts, I will make sure that they listen to you. Step two and three, we said that with the elders, they will go to Pharaoh and say, let us go, and he won't listen. And so God will have to force him to listen by compelling him with his mighty hand. Now, this is also true, but God doesn't tell Moses how many wonders he's going to do. God doesn't tell Moses how many times Moses is going to reject him. God doesn't tell him how long this is going to take. And so wonder after wonder, time and time again, rejection after rejection, Moses needs to continue to have trust that even though this isn't potentially happening as he thought that it would, God is still going to see the plan through. That the result that because of his compelling, he will listen, that will come true. Just not in Moses' timing, not in his expectation, but in God's. And then lastly, step four, we said that they will leave by plundering the Egyptians. They will leave with many riches and blessings. But not before Pharaoh makes life even worse for them. Work will be harder. In a couple chapters, they'll be having to make bricks with finding their own straw instead of being provided straw. Work will get harder. They'll be beaten more, mocked more. And so, yes, they will eventually have riches and blessings, but not that simply. Not before things get a lot worse. And so my question is, do you think that Israel needed to hear this while they were wandering in the desert? 
that they're wandering, expecting this beautiful promised land of milk and of honey, but they're in a desert where there ain't no milk and there ain't no honey. Do you think they need to hear that even when things aren't going as they expect, that God is still in control? I think so. And do you think that you also need to be reminded of this? Because you and I have been promised many things as well. You and I have been promised that by the work of the Holy Spirit, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we will be rescued, saved, brought up from our bondage to sin. That more and more we will be sanctified, made more holy. But what happens when that sanctification is painful, as it often is? When there is guilt and shame, where there is hurt relationships, where there is loss of pride, do we respond to that painful sanctification with trust, saying, yeah, this hurts, but I know that God's in control of this, and I know that this is for my good? Or do we sometimes doubt and say, God, I just want to be holy, but don't do all this painful stuff, right? Just bring me to that holiness without hurting me without bringing me through hard times. We've been promised that we will be rescued, brought up from our broken bodies, that one day our perishable bodies will be changed in a twinkling of an eye and be made into imperishable bodies. But what happens when we look around at our loved ones and we see their bodies deteriorating, breaking, collapsing, cancer, broken limbs, old age, Do we respond in trust that even when our loved ones are suffering so much as they are, that God is still in control, that God's plan will come to fruition? Or do we sometimes doubt? Do we sometimes doubt in the providence and in the control of God? And very closely to this, Israel was said, was promised, I will bring you up to a new land. We are promised that we will be brought up to a new land. But what happens when we look around and we see war tearing apart countries? War tearing apart families? What happens when we see famines in East Africa? People who have little to no food have more little and even less food. What happens when we look at our culture around us and we see how worldliness, wickedness, evil sexuality, sensuality, I could go on, seem to be ruling the day, seem to be taking charge, and there ain't much we can do about it. Do we respond and say, this is bad, but God has this? Or do we doubt? Do we doubt that God is really in control if there is so much worldliness around us? Worldliness that even creeps into our own hearts, into our own churches. I think we need to be reminded of the control of God. That even through these moments of pain, suffering, and not just moments, but it seems quite often, that God is still in control. That God still has the whole world in his hands. And by grace, in our passage, we are reminded of this control. We're reminded that God gives the main points, but doesn't give the little details. But even in the little details, he is still in control. He is still that great foreman. 
we're reminded in our passage, but we must see that we are reminded even more in the greater deliverer, in the succession of the greater plan of redemption. That Jesus Christ came to save us, to die on the cross to save us, but not before, not before he was broken, beaten, mocked. He came to save us, to be exalted for saving us, but not before many other terrible things happened to him. But at the end of it all, what did Jesus say? Not my will, but your will be done, O God. You are the planner. And though come what may happens to me, your will be done, and you will guide me through it. And our passage ends with a glorious result, the result of the plan. I'll just read the, first, the last two verses again. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go, you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver and of gold and of clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So God's plan the plan that he gives Moses and the plan that he gives us ends with riches and blessings for his people. That is his glorious end. And, and if you remember too, this is, a, this is a fulfillment of a promise that God made about 400 plus years before this. When he was talking to Abraham, making a covenant with him, he said, yes, your, your descendants will be in slavery for 400 years. But when they leave, I won't only punish the nation who put you in slavery, but I'll also bless your people, your your descendants. They will come out with abundance. They will come out not empty-handed. And so God fulfills his promise there. And look how it describes the amount of riches that they get. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. Commentaries say that it speaks this language because of the vast amount of what these blessings will be, that a parent alone could not carry the silver and the gold and the clothing themselves, but their children had to pitch in. That there was more than just one person could handle, the whole family had to come and carry it together. And it says also that by this you will plunder the Egyptians. What happens usually before plundering? Conquering. Plundering only happens after a nation is conquered. And so in God's plan of rescuing his people out of Egypt, he's also going to conquer Egypt. He's going to conquer not only the king, but he's going to conquer the false gods of Egypt. And who gets to reap the reward of God's conquering? Israel. Israel gets to plunder the Egyptians that God himself conquered. And this must be also an assurance for Israel that as they're wandering through the desert, hearing these words, being reminded of God's great control over their circumstances in this time, that as he blessed them now, here in our passage, so even while they're wandering in a desert, looking forward to that day, they will be brought into their promised land. So God is blessing them then. He will uphold them then, sustain them then but also that he will richly bless them once they get to that land. That he will lavish on them riches and blessing once they reach that land that God has so long promised them. 
And if you're anticipating where I'm going with this, that's amazing. Because we can't miss this. That our greater deliverer, who worked a greater conquering, allows us to reap a greater reward. A greater riches and greater blessing. Because God, Jesus Christ, as that greater deliverer, conquered what? What did he conquer? Sin. Jesus conquered sin. Jesus conquered the world. Jesus conquered death itself. And who gets to reap the reward for Jesus conquering? We do. The blessing of forgiveness of sins because of Christ. The silver and gold of assurance of salvation when we put our faith in that Jesus Christ. The clothing, you could say, of the great comforter and helper being given to us to live in each and every one of us. Because of Christ's great work on the cross, we reap an amazing reward. When you look back on the conquering of Christ, when you look back at God's plan succeeding in the death of Christ, does that fill you with trust? Does that fill you with faith that when unexpected twists and turns come into our life, pain that we didn't expect, suffering that we didn't see, that even in those moments that, we, that you are filled with trust, compelled to have faith that your God is still in control, that your God is still in control of your life, upholds you, sustains you, Does it compel you to trust in him now, but does it also urge you when you look at the conquering of Christ on the cross, the plan of God succeeding when Christ died? Does it urge you to look ahead? That as we already now receive the reward for the conquering of Christ, that we one day, may that day come soon, may, we will one day reap an eternal, amazing, heavenly, Reward. That we will be lavished with eternal life, with eternal joy and peace. And that as Israel was brought up out of their bondage in Egypt to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, so we will be brought up out of this broken world, completely brought up, rescued from our bondage of sin, brought to a land not just flowing with milk and honey, but flowing with the living water of Jesus Christ. This is the result of God's plan. God is in control. God has everything in his hand, and the result is this lavishing of amazing reward. Do you trust in God's plan? Do you have faith that God is in control? And do you know that your God remains in control.
Let's pray. Our God and our Father, our great planner and our great foreman, God, I thank you for choosing us as your people. Thank you for your word and especially for Jesus Christ who gives us the confidence, the assurance that we who are forgetful people need when our lives aren't as good as we want them to be. When we sin more than we should. When we know that pain and suffering are a reality in this life so that even through these moments we can trust because of the work of Christ in your plan that you are in control of not only the main points but also the small details. That you are in control and you're even gracious and merciful through all of it. That by your grace you lead us through the ebbs and flows. You lead us through the ups and downs. God, help us to trust that. Help us to put our faith in that. God, we pray this in the name of our Savior, our King, our great Deliverer, and the great Conqueror, Jesus Christ.